Hi, my name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your host for the Polyvagal Podcast. Welcome to the first ever episode. About seven months ago, I was researching online about uh, trauma. I work with a lot of individuals who have survived trauma as a therapist. Um, and I stumbled upon somatic experiencing from Peter Levine. Blew me away. It was just so amazing to see someone um, working with trauma in a much different way that I had ever been exposed to. And I was just sort of learning about all that and just really just being amazed. And eventually that led me to Dr. Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges, and the polyvagal theory, and watching a bunch of his uh, lectures and interviews, and that further blew me away, um, and I was hooked on, on both. But uh, polyvagal theory has has taken up the vast majority of my attention, including free time after work hours, just reading, studying, taking notes, uh, pre- preparing presentations. It's it just blew me away, and it's something that. Um, I want to take to the next step and begin to talk more about, um, not just with my colleagues at work, but also here on the podcast. Um, I want to start talking about this stuff. A personal goal of mine is to begin to do presentations about trauma um, centered around polyvagal theory. I've done one and I had a blast. I loved it. Something I'd like to keep doing. So this podcast is also a way for me to sort of prepare to go in that direction. Why is this worth knowing about uh, for you. Well, for me, it's, um, and hopefully for you, just to better understand how trauma works. Um, this isn't just something that happens. It's not just something that lives in the brain or just lives in, you know, it's like a thought disorder or a thought processing thing. It's really important, I think, to really accurately understand how trauma works and to demystify trauma and really illustrate that t- trauma is not, it's not a cognitive thing. Um, cog- our thoughts are definitely a part of it, but there's a huge physiological aspect to it, which is really the heart of it, I'm finding out. And then the thoughts are a problem on top of it. But um, there's this whole biological component that I think is really important to understand. So that's, I think that's just to get a better understanding of it, pretty much no matter what profession you're in, if you're, if you're in the caretaking profession, if you're a teacher, nurse, doctor, therapist, yoga instructor, anything that involves working with other people and helping them to heal or become grounded, I think knowing and understanding the polyvagal theory even a little bit can be extremely helpful. But as we go forward, I want you to put your needs first, though. This is all about, this This first episode and probably the next couple are going to be all about the groundwork of understanding what polyvagal theory is, how it works, and I'll be going into some detail. I do the best I can to not make this triggering or not to make this, um, there's, no, there's no shock value here, really. If you've been to trauma trainings before, a common thing that trauma trainers might do is to use shock value or share horrible stories without really, um, eh, I don't know, it doesn't seem super necessary to understand the, the process of trauma. So there's nothing here that I don't think anything here is hugely shocking or triggering or uh, that, but that's just my opinion. But I want you to put your needs first. I want you to, to really kind of be aware of how you're feeling. There's obviously there's a chance we're talking about trauma here. So there is a chance of triggering your own trauma if if you survived um, just due to the very nature of this presentation. Um, I've done the best that I can to keep this stuff really kind of easy to digest. And I I really don't think anything's overly shocking, but 
I, I know that the stuff that you hear, you'll take and apply it to yourself or to your kids, your families, or to your, if, you're, if you're a teacher, to your students. So take a break if you need to. Um, get up and move around. Get water. Use the restroom. Do some deep breathing. Whatever you got to do. I want to make sure that you're okay um, as we as we move along. I think this first part, um, as we talk about just some some foundational kind of stuff, and then talk about safe and social mode. I think this is pretty safe. The next stuff that's coming up, where we talk about being in danger and then being in life threat, that might be a little bit more um, triggering. I, I will definitely handle it very respectfully um, and with no shock value. Uh, but just you know, as we move on. Things get maybe a little bit more difficult. I do find that when I talk with clients about this stuff, uh, as we talk about danger mode and then life threat mode, um, there, there's more of a, a reaction, and I, I have to make sure I go real slowly and work pretty tenderly with this stuff. So, the polyvagal theory. What is it? Obviously, you're wondering what what is this thing, right? This is the best I can sum it up in my own words. Mammals are able to automatically adjust to various levels of safety or danger. But when we adjust, those adjustments have consequences for daily living. So not just human beings, but all mammals. We shift, we, we make adjustments to various levels of safety or danger, whether it's on the outside world or the inside world or something that we're just sort of perceiving. And these adjustments that we make have consequences for daily living if we become stuck in these modes, these states. So that's the best way that I can put it. Um, the, the polyvagal theory has been around since... Um, I think 1994, if I'm remembering that correctly. And um, so it's kind of been around, I think, more in the academic research circles, from as I, best I can tell. But in 2011, Dr. Porges published his his book, The Polyvagal Theory. And yeah, that was in 2011. So it's still relatively new. That's when things really hit, I think, is when things really hit. Um, therapists got a hold of it and were like, oh, this really applies to what we do. Um, so I think... At that point, it's sort of really taken off. It's been around for a little while, though, um, probably 20 years or so, or more than that, actually. But uh, only recently, I think, are therapists really latching on to it. Um, I know it hasn't made its way to school level, county level. It's It hasn't gotten there those places yet. So it's really, I think, from what I, what I can tell, is it's gotten to the people who are searching out new information. But it hasn't fully gotten its way as like common knowledge kind of stuff. It's definitely not there yet, unfortunately. It should be though, and I'm, I'm hoping this podcast can be a part of that process. So the first thing to understand, um, we're going to build this up in pieces here. There's Let's let's kind of go over the body, autonomic nervous system. We're not going to go too heavy into this stuff. Autonomic nervous system controls the body's internal environment automatically. Like it's, We don't have to think about it, it just does it. So breathing, heart rate, digestion, these are things that just happen for the most part. We don't have to think about our heart rate. We don't have to think about digesting. They just happen. Um, there's two main branches of the autonomic nervous system as we commonly know it, which is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And these are all unconscious. We don't think about it. We don't direct it. It just sort of happens. Um, and what I think the most important thing to realize here is that every autonomic response is in service of survival. That means Everything that happens, whether our sympathetic nervous system kicks in or the parasympathetic, um, th- these happen because of what we're trying to survive. That's that's true for not just human beings, but um, well, let's just stick with the mammals, all mammals. 
these are when our sympathetic nervous system kicks in and we get you know that boost of like um adrenaline and we're ready to fight or run away or whatever that, that that's about survival so all this stuff is about survival regulating our heart rates and our breathing it's about survival it's unconscious it just happens um, it's not a choice we're not choosing to do these things uh, but it, these, these are it's a survival thing it's a product of evolution and this is things that have been built up over literally millions of years um, through numerous species leading up to us uh, and it's completely natural I think it's very important to understand is that everything I talk about is something that's very natural it's expected to happen it should happen uh, under certain circumstances it should happen and that when uh, survivors of trauma go into these different reactions it's supposed to happen so the autonomic nervous system that's, that's the common knowledge of autonomic nervous system is that it's um, you know sympathetic parasympathetic fight flight and then like calming down is the parasympathetic but that's not the full picture there's really three different modes going on. They are safe and social is the first one. Um, fight and flight and then shut down. There are more technical terms for these. I'm not going to go into that right now. I think it's more important just to know those different states. So safe and social, fight and, I'm sorry, flight and fight, and then shut down. What's important here is that it's, it's not an option. We don't choose to do these things. It's a sequence that happens in a certain order. Ideally, we want to exist in the safe and social mode. But if, if, if life is dangerous, we drop down to flight and fight. And if our life is in danger, we drop down to shutdown. That's, that's a sequence. Uh, we don't choose to go into those modes. We simply do go into those modes. There's a Deb Dana analogy from her book, The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy. I uh, highly recommend you read it. If you're a therapist, it's fantastic. Um, it's a ladder. Steps on a ladder. The ladder is an analogy to the way the autonomic systems are built in our bodies. They're stacked on top of each other, literally in our body. The safe and social system is at the top, connecting the heart and the face. Flight and fight system is in the middle of our spinal column and controls our limbs, the you know, legs and arms. And the shutdown system is located right in our bellies. So it's literally like a ladder. We're moving down. If, if we're in a safe and social, that means we're um, utilizing the system that's connecting our heart to our face. It's at the top. If, if there's some sort of danger in the environment, we drop down to use our limbs and we're, we're using, literally we're dropping down the ladder and we're using the system that's in the middle of our uh, spinal column. And if our life's in threat, we're dropping down even further and we're utilizing that system that's in our gut. As we're activating this, these systems, we're dropping down the ladder. That, that's why the ladder, I think it's a really good analogy um, for what's going on. Um, so yeah, we're dropping down the ladder. I'll be using that anal that metaphor pretty consistently as we move forward. Autonomic state. So we, like I said, we have three different autonomic states. Either you're in social, safe and social, flight or fight, and shut down. That's really kind of it. These, these are, well, I mean, it's not it. It's, it's way more complex than that. Of course, there's gray areas here. And these, these modes can get kind of blended together. But as far as just making it simply, like that's our three basic states, right? Safe and social, flight and fight, shut down. And these are a reaction to the outside world, to our internal world, and to our perceptions, the way we just view the world. The, these also become the filter that we experience the world through. So these are reactions to the, to the outside world, the internal world, and our perceptions. We, we shift down the ladder. But if we, we can actually get stuck in these modes. And these modes become the ways that we view and experience the world. So someone who's in fight mode is going to filter their world through that lens. 
they are going to see more threats because they're looking for it. Not consciously, they're not choosing to look for it. Their body is just in that mode. If you've worked with um, youths and gangs, everything to them is a threat. Uh, even in, even when they're not in a threatening environment, they're still in danger mode. They're, they're stuck there. And you know, being in that mode, it changes the way they talk. It changes the way they walk. It changes. They're always looking for danger. Always. Even when you, they're hanging out with each other, they don't make a whole lot of eye contact, eye contact with each other. They're really kind of looking out. All of them are kind of looking out. Um, on guard, looking for danger, looking for danger. And they kind of like buddy up and look, you know, look, look around for danger. They don't really make eye contact with each other and smile and have close proximity exactly in a safe and social way. It's more of like protecting each other and being in danger mode and looking for danger. Even when they don't need to, even when they are safe. So what can trigger these states to dropping down the ladder? Often very unpredictable with someone who's been traumatized. Um, it could be the wrong look they get. It could be the wrong sound they hear, the wrong smell even. Any of these things or more can trigger a state shift down the ladder. If you were traumatized in a home that always had a certain smell from the kitchen, that smell may trigger your trauma reaction and bring you down the ladder when you smell that smell. So those clients or students, if you're a teacher that have a meltdown or a crisis out of nowhere, it might not really be out of nowhere. It might, for them, be very, might very much make sense. And, you know, in therapy, as you learn about these kids and what's happening for, or and adults, and what's happening for them in the moment, things that seem random and seem like they're a meltdown or a crisis out of nowhere, when you learn more about it, as a therapist, we have that moment of like, oh, I get it. That's, I get it. Now it makes sense. Uh, but on, from the outside looking in, it might make no sense, but there, I find there's typically a reason why someone is, is going into a crisis mode or a thing that could be identified eventually that maybe triggers that, that, uh, that reaction. Here's a brand new word for you probably. It's called neuroception. This is a word that Dr. Portis um, created to really um, describe a new idea of what the body goes through. Um, neuroception is the body's ability to detect risk outside of our conscious awareness. So we're bringing all this information in you know, through our senses and our body is able to use that and the information that it gets from within itself. So that's called, that's neuroception. It's detecting risk outside and also inside and neuroception de- detects this risk, but it also shifts the body up and down the ladder to the different states based on what it neurocepts like what, on what it needs. As we move down the ladder, we lose access to the behaviors that are higher up the ladder. Defensive behaviors are unlocked in order to survive. So basically, these three states unlock different behaviors, right? The neuroception of safety is like a key to use pro-social behaviors. Eye contact, a fuller range of voice, uh, closer proximity, touch, safe touch. We have to be in safe, safe and social mode in order to give and receive these things. The neuroception of danger is a key. So when the body picks up danger mode, that's a key to unlock um, flight and fight behaviors. So be mobilized for you know for running away or for being aggressive. That, but that only happens. We only get in those modes when there's a neuroception of danger, or the neuroception of a life threat. 
that's a key to unlocking the free state or it's like numbness or dissociation. But we don't really do that unless if our body's feeling safe and social, we don't really do that. So that's why I'm saying when the body neurocepts life threat, it unlocks the freeze mode and we lose access to the things higher up the ladder. We lose access to mobilization and aggressiveness. We lose access to <clears throat> making eye contact, having a fuller range of voice, being in close proximity. We lose access to those. We only have those in those certain modes. So, and not only does neuroception unlock these states, it also inhibits the behavior of the other states. Like I said, we lose access to the behaviors associated with safety when we move down the ladder and we lose access to both safety and flight and fight when we move down the ladder to shutdown. For example, uh, imagine a kid that you know, is walking home and sees a dog. <clears throat> this may or may not be based on a real example of myself as a child. May or may, maybe, maybe not. But this child is sees this dog and without thinking, just his legs start moving. He just runs. He or she don't know if the dog is dangerous. We have no idea. We don't know if the dog is playful or if it is rabid. We have no idea. But the kid that neurocepts danger in this mode sees a big dog, feels overpowered, and just runs. This this person, this child, is in danger mode or mobilization. He's, he's mobilized. He's in danger mode. He's running. That, that kid is not going to be able to use his safe and social skills. So as he's running home, he's not going to be able to stop and have a conversation. You know, he's not going to be able to smile probably as he's running as fast as he can, probably faster than he's ever been in his life because he feels like his, he's in danger. He's just focused on getting home. And once he's in his home and releases that uh, sympathetic energy, gets safe, calms down, then can move back up the ladder in a safe and social mode and then use those skills. But not while he's running, not while he's in danger mode. It, like I said, it, it is possible to mix these states together. Um, we'll get to that another time, uh, not right now. But yeah, it, it is definitely possible to mix these up together. So with neuroception, um, there's a healthy neuroception and an unhealthy neuroception. With healthy neuroception, the body detects and shifts to the appropriate state based on the environment. The body uses, so for example, the body uses social behavior in a safe environment. The body does not use defenses like fighting or fleeing unless it's in danger. That's healthy neuroception. It uses those, it uses flight when it needs to, to run. It uses fight when it needs to fight. It uses safe and social skills like eye contact and smiling and, and handshakes in a safe environment. With unhealthy neuroception, the body does not accurately detect or shift state based on the environment. The body does not fight or flee when it's in unsafe situations. The body does not use social behavior in a safe environment. Th think about um, your clients or students or whoever that does not recognize red flags. You know, like when you're in a relationship maybe and that person does something that raises a red flag, it raises a little bit of an alarm in you or maybe a big alarm. You know, there's our body, we, you feel those moments. That person said something weird. And it triggers something within you. There's like, there's a moment that you feel inside of you in your gut or in your chest 
it's a, we call that a red flag. Um, but someone with unhealthy neuroception, those red flags don't seem to go off. If there's danger in the environment, they're not really picking it up. And usually that's someone who's been traumatized. They're not, they're not picking it up in the same way as, as someone who's not been traumatized. And then so if they're not picking it up, then they're not going to be shifting into fight and flight behaviors when necessary. This might be why some traumatized individuals continually repeat the same harmful decisions. Or maybe why trauma is passed on through generations. Think about, and this is, this is something that happens a lot with the people I work with. Think about the mom that may have been sexually abused by her stepfather when she was a kid. And then later on, doesn't have any red flags when she's put in a situation to where her short-term boyfriend is now living with her family and her children. There's red flags there. That, that's a potential issue. But this is the this this idea of neuroception, healthy healthy neuroception, unhealthy neuroception, these different states that I've talked about. This is really, I think, a new way of, of viewing mental health. A kid in class who's highly distracted, looking around the room with flat affect and wide eyes. He's not doing his work. Um, he's distracting other people, uh, other kids in class. He's, you know, talking, uh, being very, very fidgety. This is a chronic issue pretty much day in, day out. If we use the DSM, we could probably build a case for eh, probably a couple different diagnoses, I, w- I would think. But w- when we look at this through a polyvagal lens, we can see that the student is neurocepting some sort of danger, either internally or ex- externally, but this student is acting in a way of someone who's in danger mode. He's being mobilized. He's in a sympathetic nervous system, our sympathetic autonomic nervous system. He has dropped down the ladder. His face has gone flat. He's not using his face to show safe social cues anymore. He's not picking up on social cues anymore. He's dropped down the ladder. He's lost access to those, um, those skills of being in safe and social mode. But when we look at it through the polyvagal lens, instead of the DSM lens, this invites us to be more empathetic, in my opinion. It invites us to be more aware of what the student is feeling. And it also invites us to, to be a safe person for that student. When we see that they're going through, or that client or whoever, when we see that they're going through, they're, they've dropped down the ladder, that reminds us, hopefully, to make sure that we're being a safe person. And I, th- I think that this, this lens, the polyvagal lens, brings a deeper understanding of mental health and behavior besides a label and an assumption of a chemical imbalance or a lifelong condition or you know all those things that a lot of us say. It, it forces us out of that mindset and into the mindset of what state is this person in? What state am I in? How am I contributing to this? How can I help to the, how can I help? What am I projecting? Um, it, it's a lot more empathy, I think. And I think it's a lot more clarity. It says a lot more. When you can describe someone's state, I think it's a lot more valuable than saying oppositional defiant disorder or ADHD or whatever else. I think it's way more useful. I would love to, be, to hear of a school using these terms of neuroception, state shifts. I would love to be in a school that where teachers and principals and assistants are, are using that kind of language to discuss their students rather than bipolar, ADHD, blah, blah, blah. So the last thing I want to talk with you about is actually two more things. The first one is uh, narratives. 
that when these state shifts occur, when we drop down the ladder, we create a story to explain why. The teacher hates me. There's no point in trying. That's a story for someone who's more in the shutdown mode and their motivation's gone. I deserved it. Or I'm worthless. I shouldn't have been there. These are stories. These are narratives that we create to explain the way we feel and why we feel the way we feel. These, they're there to explain the world. Our, our brains are meaning-making machines. The story that we create is there to provide an explanation, but it doesn't necessarily reflect, reflect reality. And, and what sadly is true is that these stories actually may add to the problem. So there's the event, there's the thing that happened that may have been traumatic or may have caused a state shift. Then there's your reaction, there is the state shift, right? And that's really where the trauma lives. But on top of that, what we do is we create a story. And those stories are oftentimes full of shame and full of blame. which So it just adds to the problem. And those shameful and blaming comments or stories that we create in our head may not reflect reality. Especially things like I'm worthless or I deserved it. It's probably not reality, but but it's it's an it's an attempt to explain what has happened. And the last thing is moving up the ladder. It is absolutely possible to move back up the ladder. Um, De- Deb Dana does a really good job of explaining in, in through her um, therapy book, polyvagal therapy book, how to move back up or how how to help clients move back up and how to recognize what state they're in. But yeah, it's absolutely possible to move up the ladder. But we need to go through each state to do so. We don't go from shutdown mode into safe and social mode. We have to go from shutdown mode into fight and then into flight and then into safe and social mode. That doesn't mean that we have to actually fight somebody. It doesn't mean that we actually have to get up and run out of the building. These things look a lot different. It doesn't. I'm, it's not the extremes exactly. But in therapy, I'll see a you know a client tapping their leg. That to me, that means they want to move. And um, there was an example from uh, Peter Levine, and this actually happened to me once in, in session as well, where he encouraged or he helped guide the client through a visualization of running away, and that seemed to really help release the trauma energy. I did that once in session, um, and it's the same result where it seemed to really release the trauma energy. And they went through this um, spontaneous sort of breathing to get back into like safe and social mode. Um, so it is possible to move through these things. And it is possible to do it within a therapeutic hour. Absolutely. Uh, but it doesn't mean you have to fight someone. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to get up and run away. It doesn't mean you have to uh, yeah, do any of that stuff. So that that's the first part of the polyvagal theory. The next section is going to be about um, going way deeper into safe and social mode and what exactly that means. So something for you to work on until the next episode is ask yourself, do you have any stories, any narratives um, in your own life? Um, These can be very minuscule, um, not super important things, you know, like, like an easy one is just being, you know, the next time that you get cut off on the freeway. Do you have a story in your head about the person who did that to you? Or uh, if you get the wrong change at Starbucks or they don't put the right <laughs> type of milk in there or something, is there a story that you have in your head about how lazy they are or how they're out to get you? Or I don't know, whatever. But notice, just notice until our, the next episode, 
notice these little narratives that pop in your head. Um, that's that's my request of you for this next um, this next week or so. These things always follow a state shift, so but I'm not. Don't, we haven't gone in state shifts yet, so don't worry about that. But just look out for those uh, those narratives. And the other thing I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself um, when you have when you have a moment to be a little bit introspective. Ask yourself if you feel safe. Um, not if you are safe, like in the real world. Like uh, you know, not am I in a safe environment? But do I feel safe in my body? Does my body feel safe? Um, I like to ask my clients that, and usually it's a no. Um, they say they say they I am safe, and I say I know you're safe with me, and you you feel trusting, and it's okay to be vulnerable and whatnot. But day to day, for the most part, do you feel safe? And usually it's a no. And then I say, okay, well, do you feel more like and this is extremely simplistic, but do you feel more like running or fighting or shutting down usually day to day? So that's what I'd ask you, dear listener. Um, do you feel safe? And if not, typically, or even right now, do you feel more like running or fighting or shutting down? Just something to think about. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I hope this has brought you some value. We have a long way to go. If you have a question about anything at all, I'd love to hear it. Um, and possibly even address it in a future episode. I've already started to make a list of topics for this podcast. I've gotten a couple ideas from people on Twitter already that I'm really excited about, including some parenting stuff, and I love that stuff. So feel free to contact me. It's, um, uh, what is my email address? <laughs> JustinLMFT at gmail.com, or you can D, uh, DM me on Twitter, JustinLMFT on Twitter. I'll have all the links and email in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.